passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 9 through 16 this morning, kind of picking up where we were two weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read the passage, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, discuss it. This is an interesting passage, one that uh, can be not necessarily difficult to understand, but kind of difficult to apply because of the great distance between the context of the first century that Paul is writing into and ours today. So hear these words from 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I'd have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This morning's text is probably a pretty good example of something that we talked about a few weeks ago when we were looking at the role of a pastor. And one of the things that we talked about as we were talking about the role of a pastor is our charge as a church to preach expositionally. To work through a book of the Bible verse by verse and and really see what a Bible as a whole has to say to us as a church. And I I say that this is a good reason, uh, this passage is a good example of that. It's because it can kind of be difficult for us to understand. The verses that we just read are either so specific to a situation in Ephesus that is miles different from our situation here that, that it really doesn't apply to us. Or it comes across as harsh, especially harsh, toward young women. It is easy to skip this passage, but because we believe that the entire Bible is the authoritative Word of God, we don't want to skip it. We believe that the Holy Spirit has something to teach us from these verses this morning. And so we're going to wrestle this morning about what Paul is talking about. What specific issue is Paul addressing? We're going to ask the questions of whether Paul is being uncharitable or not. Is Paul assuming that young women are weak, that they are prone to wickedness? For that matter, is this passage contradictory? In chapter 4, we saw that Paul declared that marriage was good if it's received with thanksgiving. Verse 14 here in this passage, Paul urges younger widows to get married. And yet in verses 11 and 12... Paul says that this desire to marry has has led many of these young women to condemnation, to abandoning their faith. This is a desire that is evil, according to these verses. And so we're going to wrestle through what is what is Paul saying? 
What does it mean for us this morning that he says marriage is good, and yet at the same time he says, well, you know, if you want to get married, well, that, that's too bad. It leads you away from the gospel. I think the key for us this morning as we look at this passage is first to understand Paul's purpose for writing these words. What is he trying to communicate? In the midst of all of the details, what is the main focus of Paul's words here? And the, the answer to that is found at the end of verse 14. Take a look at verse 14 again. Paul says this, So, or in conclusion, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Those last few words there. Give the adversary no occasion for slander. Paul's purpose, uh, he has a couple different purposes, but his primary focus in these verses is the reputation of the church. Paul is concerned with the reputation of the church. Don't lose sight of that concern. Paul is concerned with the reputation of the church. Whatever else he's saying, he wants to make sure that the church has a good reputation to outsiders. What's interesting as we look through 1 Timothy is that this actually comes up quite a bit. Time and time again, Paul is concerned with the reputation of the church with those who are non-Christians. He wants the church, he wants this group of believers in Ephesus... In addition to sharing the gospel with those that are outside, in addition to caring for one another, he wants those who are outside of the church to think highly of those who are inside the church. Chapter 2, Paul actually makes that one of his primary focuses when he says that we as Christians are called to prayer. He says, you know what, you should pray for your leaders, and the reason you should pray for your leaders is because we want them to create an environment for us where we can flourish as a church, where the church can be a blessing to our community. In chapter 3, Paul is describing the qualifications for leaders in the church, and one of the things that he says, in addition to being spiritually mature, is says, I want those who are leaders in the church to be well thought of by outsiders. This is a a concern of Paul throughout this letter. And apparently, at some point before this letter, some in the church had tarnished its reputation. Paul is gravely concerned with the issue of the church's reputation here. Paul writes because he wants to repair that reputation. And here he's focusing on the reputation when it comes to care for widows. As we approach God's word... And look at this passage. Let's pause and pray once more. Please pray with me. God, we rejoice. The goodness of your word. With Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus when he's in the wilderness, we confess that bread alone is not enough for us. That your word nourishes us. It sustains us. It strengthens us. And yet, God, at the same time, we confess that we often don't love your word the way that you would have us love it. And so this morning, we ask that you would stoke the embers of our hearts to a greater love for you. To a greater love, a greater appreciation for your word. 
Speak to us through this passage this morning, O God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Last time we were in 1 Timothy, we looked at the first part of chapter 5, and we saw that the Christian has a responsibility to care for their elderly or aging family members. One of the ways we describe this is not just a responsibility, it's actually a duty. It's a part of the things that God charges us to do as Christians. Chapter 5 opens with this picture of the church as the family of God, and he follows with a specific call for our physical families. We spent some time uh, looking at the way that we as Christians are called to, uh, to care for the vulnerable in our families, specifically our aging parents. Widows in the first century are, were one of the most vulnerable segments of the population, and I think it's safe for us to say that our passage this morning, while widows are the primary focus, are not the only focus. This passage is broader than just widows. I think it includes other groups, including widowers, lonely older couples, single moms, immigrants, the poor, and on and on. Take the care of the vulnerable who are in your family. Last time we were reminded that the Bible calls us to this, that God calls us to this because it is a tangible way of honoring God. But it also is right in the sight of everyone else. Remember Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose is that the reputation of the church would not be tarnished, and if non-Christians are taking care of their family members because it is right, then it should be a given for Christians to do the exact same thing. That's what verses 1 through 8 are primarily about. Verses 9 and 10, Paul transitions. Previously, Paul is talking about family members, our charge to take care of our family members, and now he looks at those that the church is going to care for. Let's take a look again at verses 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Here we see the requirements for those that the church is going to care for on a long term. And we see this word enrolled. Enrolled is a significant word. It shows that this isn't an ad hoc process, but there is a plan in place to effectively care for those who are in the church. If you are going to receive care from the church, then you first must meet some requirements. This kind of care that the church is going to extend is more than just a one-way street. Apparently, this is a unique program set up by the church in Ephesus. It was relatively common in the first few centuries of the church where those who are cared for by the church contributed to the ministry of the church. Their physical needs were met by the church while they made vows or commitments to serve in and to care for the church. Verse 5, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, hints that consistent prayer is a part of this vow. Continuing in prayer and in supplication. 
Here, these verses hint that hospitality, service, benevolence are all a part of the requirements or the responsibilities of those who are enrolled and cared for by the church. But they're also requirements. Let's take a look at some of these requirements. First in verses 5 and 6. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is indulgent is dead even while she lives. These two verses tell us two things about the requirements to be enrolled in this church benevolence program. The first is this. The widow had to be completely alone. If she had any family in the church, then it was the family's responsibility to take care of them. The second requirement is that she would be a Christian. There's a sharp contrast here between verses 5, this widow who has her hope set on God, and this indulgent widow in verse 6. It's a contrast that's so great that it describes a a Christian and a non-Christian. Paul is describing those who will be cared for by the church, and he says, we must first and foremost take care of those who are in the faith. Verses 9 and 10 give us more requirements for these women. The first one in verse 9 is this, the widow had to be over the age of 60. And we're going to talk about this more here in a few minutes. Talk about it and look at it more in depth. You might be thinking, why age 60? You're thinking ahead to what we've already read. Paul says he desires that younger widows get remarried, that they have children. It's, it's unusual for women in their mid to late 50s to have children. So why does Paul set the bar at age 60? Well, I don't want you to read too much into it. Life expectancy, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, life expectancy in the first century was abysmally low for men and women, but especially women. Men, it was usually around the, uh, the age of 42 was a life expectancy. For women, it was around the age of 34. Culturally, the age of 60 and this is a bit of an anachronistic term here, one that they wouldn't have used in the first century. But, but age 60 was roughly the equivalent of an ancient retirement age. And so what Paul is referring to here is widowed retirees. That's too simplistic, but that's essentially what he's saying for. That's why he says age 60 here. More on that in a few moments on why Paul excludes women who are younger than that. Verse 9 also tells us that the widow has to have been a faithful wife. Notice here that it says that she is the husband, or excuse me, the wife of one husband. These words here are the exact same words that we saw in chapter 3 when it talks about elders and the requirements to be an elder, that the elder would be a husband of one wife. It's the exact same phrase. It just switches the words wife and husband. If you remember when we looked at that passage a few months ago, We saw that what is being talked about is more than just a simple divorce and remarriage policy. What is the focus here is, have you been faithful while you were married? Were you faithful while you were married? That is a requirement here according to this passage. Faithfulness in marriage, being a faithful wife. Verse 10 tells us another requirement, that the widow had to be known for her good works. Notice the word reputation here. This woman had to have the reputation of good 
works. And then Paul lists four specific good works for the first century. First one is this, that she should be a good mother. Has she cared for children? Has she managed her household well? Has she taught them the faith? Elizabeth Scatliff was born in 1705 near London, England. We don't know a whole lot about her, but we do know that she was the mother of one son. Only had one son. Her husband was a sailor. His name was John. And he would be gone for months at a time, sometimes a year or longer, leaving Elizabeth alone to care for her son. Now, her husband was a moral person, but he was not a Christian. Elizabeth, however, was a woman of great Because of her husband's long absences, her son became very close to her in specific. Much of her life, she suffered with tuberculosis. And because of that, she had chronic fatigue, was often bedridden for days and even weeks at a time. And even though she was weak, she knew that her time with her son very well could be short, and she was determined to not squander that opportunity. She was determined to be her son's teacher, and later her son wrote that he could read as well at the age of four as he could as a full adult. He once wrote this, As I was her only child, she made it the chief business and pleasure of her life to instruct me And to bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This was her focus as her husband was away that she was going to raise up a son who was well educated as well as a son who knew the Lord. Sadly, because she had tuberculosis, her life was cut short and she actually died before her son turned seven. She died at the age of 27 from tuberculosis. A year after her death, her husband remarried, and her young son at this time, seven, eight years old, fell out of favor with his stepmother, was quickly forgotten. At the age of nine, he went to a boarding school, was sent off to a boarding school. And by the age of 11, his father decided that it was time for him to join his father on the seas. And so in the most formative years of this young, young man's life, he, he grew up on the seas, quickly forgetting the faith of his mother. Later in life, he became the captain of a slave ship. And yet God was not done with this man. Later he wrote this, Though in the process of time I send away all the advantages of these early impressions... Yet they were for a great while a restraint upon me. They returned again and again, and it was very long before I could wholly shake them off. And when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found a great benefit from the recollection of them. My mother had stored my memory with many valuable pieces of scripture, of hymns, and of poems. A son of Elizabeth, who only 
She only mothered for six years before she died. He became a Christian later on in life, and you may be familiar with his name. John Newton. John Newton is the author of probably the most famous Christian worship song out there, Amazing Grace. And he credits his mother, even though she only had six and a half years with him, as being instrumental to his faith. That's the type of impact that a mother can have. That's the type of impact that Paul is describing here. Later, his biographer wrote this about John Newton. The spiritual lessons the boy had learned at his mother's knee were never forgotten. In fact, they became the foundation for Newton's eventual conversion and Christian commitment. This great pastor, this great hymn writer from the 1700s, owes it all to Jesus and to his mother. That's the description that Paul is giving here when he talks about good works. When he talks about being a good mother. In God's family economy, both the the father and the mother are important. Both the father and the mother are charged with raising their children to know God. And yet more often than not, behind every testimony of great children of faith is a great woman of faith. Their mother. That is what Paul is describing here. This desire for women to be good, faithful mothers, to teach their children the faith. And then he continues with other examples of these good works. He he describes hospitality. He says that these women who are going to be enrolled in the church's role of of widows they're going to take care of should be hospitable, welcome people into their home and into the church. They should be women of humble service, washing the feet of the saints. And they should be women of compassion, caring for those who are afflicted. And here at the end of verse 10, Paul sums it up and says, In short, they should be devoted to every good work. As we look at that list, we can say it's a pretty lofty. It's also a pretty awe-inspiring list of, of requirements, of qualifications, of expectations, Upon these women, is it not? Take a step back. Whether you're a widow or not, aren't verses 9 and 10, throw out, throw out the age 60 here for a second, aren't verses 9 and 10 a good description of what it means to be a faithful Christian? To be faithfully devoted to being a minister of the gospel in your family and in your own life. What woman who is married and has children wouldn't want to be described this way? What woman wouldn't want to have their children describe them the same way John Newton describes his mom, even though his last memory of her is when he was six and a half years old? What woman, whether she is single and has no children, wouldn't want to be described as a woman who is compassionate, as a woman who is hospitable, as a woman who is a humble servant? You see, Paul may be describing a specific role here in the church in Ephesus, but his words are very important for us this morning. 
In fact, in a big way, this type of life, the life that is described in in verses 9 and 10, is the life that influences the reputation, not just of the church in Ephesus, but our church here as well. Paul wants the church to elevate, to care for these women who are needy, and yet they had proved themselves faithful time and time again. They had, been faith, or they had been paragons of faithfulness in the church, and he wanted them honored by caring for them and caring for their needs. These were the type of women that the church could be proud of. And yet at the same time that Paul is elevating these women, he's also implicitly charging the rest of these women in Ephesus to live these types of lives, isn't he? His desire is for all the women in the church of Ephesus to live this type of life, to meet these types of qualifications. He wants all of the women in Ephesus to be faithful. He wants all of them to be godly because a godly woman is one of the greatest assets for the reputation of a church. And so women, no matter your age, you have been given a wonderful platform No matter your season of life, whether you are married or or single, whether you have children or not, whether they're in the home or not, you have been given a wonderful platform. Won't you seek to live a life of faithfulness? I wish the passage ended right there. But Paul continues in this transition here between verses 10 and verse 11 are, are, is extremely abrupt. And while the requirements for those who are enrolled makes good sense as a whole, we, we still have this question of the age. After all, Elizabeth Scatliff, or later Elizabeth Newton, died at the age of 27, and she was a picture of Christian faithfulness. Would she not have been a good candidate for this type of care for the church? Or, excuse me, care by the church. That's compounded by the verses 11 through 13. Let's reread those. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their form of faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Our questions from from our time beginning this morning, is marriage good or bad? Is it wrong for a widow to, to get remarried or not? What is Paul trying to say in these verses? To understand them, we have to recognize that this is largely situational. Paul's statements here are not universal. Paul is not describing every single woman as weak-willed. He's referring to a specific situation that's taking place here. And yet, it still has something to say to us. It would be too simplistic for us to conclude that Paul is saying that every single woman who is under the age of 60 who loses her husband is bound to abandon the faith. Paul's not saying that. It's just too simplistic. So what is Paul describing here? There are three theories that I think describe what is going on in Ephesus. We're going to go through each of them briefly. First one is what I call the unequally yoked theory. Unequally yoked theory. This is basically saying that when the women are abandoning the faith, these widows 
who desire to get remarried, they are so, uh, they desire to get remarried so much that they don't care whether they get remarried to a Christian or not, and so they abandon the faith because they get married to non-Christians, or at worst, they get married to the false teachers. It's largely an argument from silence. Paul could have said that a lot simpler. We don't have the evidence to say that this unequally yoked theory is right or wrong, and it it seems to be wrong. So that's our first theory that we can probably throw out. The second one is this, baby and the bathwater theory is the one I call this. So according to this theory, there's false teaching that's taking place in Ephesus. This false teaching is saying that marriage is bad, and these widows who are young widows, they fall prey to this false teaching. They begin to believe that it is Christian and it is right to believe that marriage is bad. And pretty soon they begin to associate this false teaching with the Christian faith. But as time goes on, they desire to get married. They desire to have kids. They still have lives that they desire to live. They see their non-Christian friends getting married and getting to experience the joys of marriage, of, of parenthood. And they become bitter toward the church. They, they, can't, they can't separate this false teaching that says marriage is bad with the teaching of the gospel that Paul describes in chapter 4 that says marriage is a good gift from God. And so they come to a tension where they eventually throw the baby out with the bathwater. They, they abandon Christianity because they think that Christianity says marriage is wrong. Baby is thrown out with the bathwater. Now, this theory more likely than the first, but it's still largely an argument from silence, and it could be said in a simpler way. So that leaves us with our third theory, and I'm sure you think or realize that I um, think this one is probably the most accurate one. I call this the the sound of music theory. What I mean by that is uh, we're we're all familiar with the story Sound of Music, where Mary Poppins, I I mean uh, Maria, Uh, decides um, to leave her life as a nun in training to marry a man that she worked for, Baron Von Trapp. She leaves her life in the abbey to become a wife. You might be saying, what does that have to do with the church in Ephesus? I think it's surprisingly similar. Our passage this morning is actually where the uh, roots of Catholic nuns comes from. This enrollment that is talked about in verse 9 most likely included a, a vow or a commitment to serve in the church for widows and to remain celibate, to remain unmarried. And yet, just like Maria in Sound of Music, when she falls in love with a man, she decides to renounce her vow which was it's a little different because she sings, so it's okay. Don't worry about that. She, she renounces her vow to go and live a married life. These younger widows had made this vow, had been enrolled, and were being taken care of by the church. But over time, as is natural, they desired to remarry, and they had this conflict in their hearts. 
On the one hand, they wanted to keep their commitment, their vow to the church, and yet on the other hand, they desired to get remarried. This tension built and it built and it built, and eventually they wound up forsaking their vows. Yet, this must have happened more than just once. Because Paul is addressing it. If it was just a one-time situation, Paul would have probably been a lot more specific and named names and said, this woman needs to be confronted. In fact, that Paul is, is talking about this in general terms, meaning that this was relatively common in the church in Ephesus. What's more, these women, in verse 13, became idlers and gossips. They were busybodies, feeding off of the secrets that were shared with one another. This word busybody in Greek refers to just being extremely nosy, always wanting to have your finger in other people's business. In a very real sense, what Paul is describing here is these women who went from nuns on the highest form of commitment to the church in that day all the way to the desperate housewives. Those that were elevated on a platform as paragons of Christian faithfulness instead became idlers, became gossips, became busy bodies. Notice this great contrast here between the verses of uh, the, the description of verses 9 and 10. These beautiful pictures of faithfulness with verse 13 could not be more extreme here. Which do you think is better for the church? Which do you think speaks better for the church? The picture of faithfulness or the gossip who always wants to have their nose in everyone else's business? This fall from grace, from a position of faithfulness to nosy gossips is is huge. It's a huge fall from grace. And no wonder Paul condemns this with such harsh words. He says that they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. They've forsaken their vows, but more than that, they've just gone completely the other direction and are now living like the rest of the world. It's an embarrassment for the church. Those who had been exalted into a position of prominence as examples of faithfulness have now fallen into the trap of the world. It's bad enough that they break their vows, but now they're following the world. Many of us are all too aware that trust is built over years, and yet it can only take a few moments to be destroyed. And that's no clearer than the church here in Ephesus. The church's reputation is tarnished. And you probably know from experience which speaks louder to a culture. Years of faithfulness or one juicy fall from someone who is in a position of authority. Which speaks louder to the culture, verses 9 and 10 or verses 11 through 13? That is what Paul is talking about here. You see, if the first few verses here describe what a faithful Christian looks like, what their faithful service looks like, these verses highlight the importance of following the example of those who go before you. Following the example of older women, of finding a mentor. There's a really... There's a very real danger for all of us, not just for women in their 20s, not just for women in their 30s, not just for widows, not just for single women. There's a very real danger for all of us because the reputation of the church 
in one sense, relies on our faithfulness to the gospel. Yes, they are the focus of Paul's words here, but they are not alone. All of us have these two paths set before us. The path of verses 9 and 10, this path of faithfulness, or the path of verses 11 through 13, this path of the world. And so women specifically, but all of us today, will we commit ourselves, will we commit our lives to the lifestyle of faithfulness? Or will we commit it to the lifestyle of verses 11 through 13? You see, Paul is gravely concerned with the reputation of the church. We highlighted that earlier because of this overarching concern that Paul says in verse 14, he desires that younger women marry, that they have children, that they essentially prove themselves faithful in the ways that the women who are enrolled have proved themselves over the years. Paul desires that women would follow the footsteps of those who have gone before them. That's how he closes this passage in verses 14 through 16. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul isn't being harsh here. He isn't being mean to younger women in Ephesus. He simply hopes and he prays that they will turn into the type of women that's described in verses 9 and 10. That's Paul's desire, that they would be faithful like those who have gone before them. And so great is his desire for this that he issues a very real warning. When he's talking about these women who have abandoned the faith, he says that they have already strayed after Satan. The temptation of the world is great. There are some who have already turned their backs on God. May it not be so with us. Let us, no matter our season, whether we are young or old, whether we are married or single, whether we are parents with children or whether we do not have children, consider how to live lives of faithfulness that reflects well on the church. That's really what this passage is about. If we were to sum it up just in one, one sentence, it would be this. No matter your season of life, seek to be an authentic and faithful Christ follower. No matter your season of life, seek to be an authentic, faithful Christ follower. Here on a Sunday morning, tonight with your children, when your children's throwing a child's throwing a temper tantrum in the checkout line at Hy-Vee or Fairway, when you are upset with a call at a baseball game for your children, whether you are upset with what your boss did at work, seek to be an authentic and faithful Christ follower. Think deeply and seriously on how your life reflects Jesus and how your life reflects crosswinds. That's what this passage is describing. It's not a call to perfection. It's a call to faithfulness. And part of faithfulness is to watch our lives closely. You see, this this passage is directed toward women, but it, it really is for each and every one of us. How can we live out lives of faithfulness? 
We have been called to faithfulness. This glorious weight of the reputation of Jesus and of the church is not just for widows. It's not just for women. It rests on all of our shoulders. For all of us who call ourselves Christians. For all who call themselves a part of Crosswinds Church. How is God calling you to live a life that reflects well on him and on everyone else here? You may be thinking, this is an impossible task. And in one sense, it kind of is. Christopher Wan, you may be familiar with that name. Uh, He is a speaker, um, a professor at Moody Bible Institute. Unlike John Newton, he was not born to Christian parents. His parents were atheist immigrants from China through way of Taiwan. They had very traditional Asian values. Christopher Wan, at a point in his life, announced that he was gay, and his mom was so shocked, so distraught about that, that she told him that he would have to choose between his family and his homosexuality. He chose his homosexuality, walked out the door, packed his bags, and was gone. This woman who was from Taiwan, who had experienced disappointment after disappointment in her life, the thought of a, of a gay son was just too much for her to bear. And so she made plans to leave Chicago, where she was living, to take the train to Louisville, where her son Christopher was living, and say goodbye to him, and then take her own life. Yet for some reason... Makes no sense to her as an atheist. Makes perfect sense if you believe in a sovereign God, which she does now. I just gave it away. She visits a chaplain first. Before she leaves on the train for Louisville, she stops to speak with a chaplain. He gives her a booklet. The next day, on the train, she has some time to kill, and so she pulls out this booklet from the chaplain, and it describes the love of God for everyone, his desire to save all people. She reads these words, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And there on the train, as she is on her way to go say goodbye to her son and take her own life, she commits her life to Jesus. And rather than saying goodbye to her son when she arrives in Louisville, she comes up to her son and says, you know what, son, I love you no matter what. Immediately, she goes back home. She buys a Bible. She begins reading it fervently and praying constantly. Her greatest desire, her greatest concern is no longer her son's homosexuality, but instead his soul. And she begins to pray and pray and pray. And she commits to persevere in her prayers until God answers those prayers. And years pass. Her son spirals even deeper. He he disconnects himself from his family. He goes to become a man of many sexual partners. He goes to begin a person who does drugs. And then eventually he starts dealing drugs. And then one day, the DEA shows up at his door with drug charges. And he's sentenced to six years in prison. His mom, who has been praying constantly for him, fasting weekly for him, enlisting hundreds of her friends to pray for her son, had been praying that his friends would abandon him. And when he's sent to prison, all of his friends abandon him instantly. He's left with no one to talk to, no one to to turn to, and so he calls his mother. 
And over the course of his time in prison, God uses encounter after encounter, experience after experience to make him a Christian. Now he's a world-renowned speaker, a professor at one of the most well-known Bible institutes in the entire world. And his mom, Angela, is a reminder to us, if we think that we have missed the boat, if we think that we have missed our chance to live a faithful life, maybe your children are already out of the house and you, you, you regret that you didn't take the opportunity to point them to Jesus. Maybe you look at your life and the things that you have done in your workplace or in your family or the way you've treated your husband or your past husband and, and you regret those experiences and you say, I'm never going to be that picture of faithfulness here. Angela Wan is a reminder to us that no one is too far gone. That there is no one without hope that all of us can reflect God's love. And all of us can be a beacon of faithfulness for the reputation of the church. You see, God has grace. God has mercy. There's, there's never a point where it's too late to, to turn to him or to, re, to come to him for the first time as long as we have breath in our lungs. And so no matter your season of life, seek to be an authentic, faithful Christ follower. Let's pray. Father, as we think of the words of this passage... Words that can seem very weighty. Words that we may not like to hear that the reputation of your church in one sense relies or rests on our shoulders. We confess our great need for your spirit to help. When we think of people like Angela Wan, who spends thousands of hours in prayer for her son. When we think of Elizabeth Newton, who dedicated what little time and energy she had when she was a young mother to, to raise up a, a, a man who literally changed the world. We can think that we are unworthy. And in one sense, we are. And yet, God, we know that you still have a plan for us. So help us, God. Help us to turn to you, to rest on you, and to reflect you in our culture, in our communities, in our families, and in our world, God. It's through your Holy Spirit that we desire to do so, and it's through your Holy Spirit that we ask all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.